pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. If we're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water, leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on <laughs> it. I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Agreement, the podcast in which I, Catherine. And I, Michelle. Bring you three things each week. What are those things, Michelle? Each fortnight. Fortnight, I can't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, someday. Those three things are a weird thing, a pop culture thing, and a research thing. And then we have to make them fit all together and send a message to you to take for your fortnight. I was I was thinking for our message, we need to do at least 365 of these so that we can have one of the ripoff calendars where each day is just one of our messages. Yes, that would be amazing. Agreement, fortune cookies, the 2029. How long will it take us to do 300? A little while. Someday, someday, folks. All right. So my weird thing is very short because I don't know why weird thing is so hard for me, but also um, I intentionally tried to make it really short because once again, I think my research thing is going to get a little out of control. Oh yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. So my weird thing is, do you know what Blashko's lines are? Flashko's lines? Blashko, B-L-A-S-C-H-K-O. I have no idea what Blashko's. I don't know Blashko. I don't know lines. So Blashko's lines are V-shaped stripes down your back, U-shapes on your chest and stomach, simple stripes on your arms and legs, and waves on your head. But you can't see them because they can only are only visible under UV light. But your what? cat, your cat Michelle, can see them. Yeah, you say you have trouble with weird things, but you are bringing it. Your lake of burping death last fortnight. And now this, this is amazing. Your cat can see stripes on your body? Your cat can see stripes on your body. Like avatar style decoration. And apparently there are different kinds, like there's different kinds. Like we have different patterns. Like some people have like splotches and some people have more stripies. And uh, yeah, so we we are, we are patterned. Uh, There's like, it's like a, um, some sort of genetic melanin thing that if that was triggered, they would actually show up as stripes. So we have stripes, but our genetics tell them not to like show up as a different melanin color, but they are on us. 
and you could see some people can see theirs depending on their own skin tone and everything under UV light. If you're in a really dark room, you could, you can check your own pattern, but the way we know about them is because it shows up in some skin conditions. So people will have them where they like get skin conditions along the lines. And some people who are, um, I never know how to pronounce, is it Chimera? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Chimera. Chimera. Yeah. So some people who have chimerism, if I'm saying that right, um, that they, their stripes will show up visibly. Wow. And, but why can cats see it? They just, oh, cats can see it. I actually, I I did look that up too. So cats can see it because cats have a higher UV range than humans. So they can see lots of things that we can't see. However, not having that UV blocker in our eyes um, or having the UV blocker in our eyes makes us not be able to see as much but we can see things in more detail than our cats. So our cat's world, there are more things, but it is blurrier. Suck it, cats. Get some glasses. (laughs) Okay, I have an idea, Michelle. Naked blacklight party to see our stripes (laughs) or spots. I think we got to take that on the road. Naked raves with your cat. We'll do them in cat cafes at night. Done. Done. How did you learn that? Um, I saw a meme that was like, what do you mean my cat can see my stripes? And I was like, <laughs> see, <what>? memes. <laughs> memes are our culture, period. Period. So I was like, well, I have to figure out what that means. So I went and looked it up a bit. And I love it. Now I now I know. Okay, my weird thing is also pretty short. And um, please. Everyone, don't chastise me that it is an animal fact. <laughs> I love, technically yours was also an animal yeah, fact. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Animals are fascinating. I'm not, I love I'm not apologizing for it. You come here for your animal facts and... I know, we're going to change it to animal thing, television thing, <laughs> long-winded thing. <laughs> <laughs> animal thing, television thing, long-winded thing. Angry That's with us. really what this is, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, anyone who's mad at yet another animal fact, you're going to stop being mad as soon as you go to the show notes and click the link and look at these photos. You're welcome. But today I learned that cheetahs in zoos more often than not now have emotional support dogs. Oh, yep. I just love that fact. Why why did the cheetahs in zoos need emotional support dogs? Are we are we mistreating them in the zoos? Is there a It's actually I learned cheetahs and dogs have a very good relationship in nature and in zoos. So in zoos, cheetahs are a very shy animal by nature. And there are other creatures that you know you can breed for certain things. Um But cheetahs, for some reason, you can just, no matter what you do, they are shy. They're very shy. And they don't have any confidence. Which, if you look at a cheetah, you would not know that. Because they are fast and beautiful. Yeah, we use them. I mean, like, cheetah print is supposed to be like, look at me. So confident. I know. So, yeah, they're, they're very shy. They're very not confident. And so, basically, what zoos do to help with that is they place newborn cheetah cubs with puppies and they just grow up their whole lives together. So that way that the cheetah cubs thinks the puppy is one of them and they don't hurt the dog eventually. 
And the videos of them all playing together is amazing because people can't train cheetahs to be more confident. They can't breed it into them. But dogs, if they are around dogs, which are very confident creatures, they will start to mimic and take on the traits of dogs. I am reading with my middle school writing class, a book called A Dog in the Cave. Have I mentioned that on here before? No. Okay. So it is all about how humans and dogs, co- well, humans and wolves co-evolved and how we we genetically changed each other. And so for instance, you know how you can see the whites of our eyes? Yeah. So much more than most primates. Uh-huh. One working theory that has quite a bit of evidence behind it is that that is so we can communicate with our dogs when we're hunting because we'll like look and they'll follow where our eyes go to know where to go. That's so cool. Um, and dogs, uh, like dogs will look when you point at things, whereas wolves will not. So like, it's a, like our communication with each other has co-evolved. Um, and we, they think that it is very likely that the reason that we survived, we being homo sapiens and the Neanderthals died out is because we were cooperating with dogs to hunt and Neanderthals did not have that relationship. So the same thing can happen for cheetahs, not just humans. At the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, expert on cheetahs, Janet Rose Hinestrasa says, when you pair cheetah cub, With a guide dog, the cat looks to the dog for cues and learns to model their behavior. It's about getting them to read that calm, happy-go-lucky vibe from their cheetah support dogs. The cheetah support dogs also act as support dogs, like support animals. Zoos have noticed that when cheetahs have to, if they break their legs or they have to have surgery for some reason, the recovery time after surgery for cheetahs that have emotional support dogs is vastly faster. That is fascinating. Oh, well, both of our weird things were like relatively happy and interesting this time. It was good. It wasn't death. And I will say that's in zoos, but. Oh yeah, you said in the wild too. The Cheetah Conservation Fund since like 1994 has been raising money to donate Anatolian shepherd dogs to African farmers. Those dogs also help the cheetahs to be more aggressive and more confident. And it guards against predators and poachers because Anatolian sheep shepherd dogs are like big, scary dogs. And so they keep predators away from the cheetahs. They keep poachers away from the cheetahs and they give those natural cheetahs more confidence. But the head of the cheetah conservation fund said like dogs will save cheetahs from extinction. And so far in the wild, they started in 1994 and the Namibian cheetah population at least has doubled since then, since they started putting Anatolian shepherd dogs in with cheetahs. So like for real, like dogs probably saved us from extinction and now they might save. So dogs are just saving heroes. What else can, I think we need to pair them up with more animals that are going extinct. See what happens. I'm trying to imagine like, here, wild (laughs) condors have this puppy. (laughs) Yeah, it might not be as good with like, yeah. So some, some relationships are not so good. That was my thing. I love it. I love it. 
culture. My pop culture thing starts with the Mia Culpa. I am teaching a high school lit classics and film adaptations class. And we're doing, uh, we did The Great Gatsby with Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. And right now we're working on Taming of the Shrew. We're going to watch 10 Things I Hate About You. And I wanted a third one and I put it in the middle and it was The Scarlet Letter and Easy A. Have you seen Easy A? I, I know I have, but I do not remember much about it. Neither did I, which turned out to be a problem. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, so my pop culture thing is that I had seen Easy A when it came out, like in 20, I might not have seen it like the year it came out, but it came out in 2010 and I saw it within like a year of that, right? So I saw it yeah. in like 2010, 2011, um, which is not that long ago in the scheme of things, right? Like 10 years, you would not expect a movie that has only been out 10 years to be vastly culturally inappropriate. Um, and oh. so, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I knew that it was going to be the edgiest of the ones we were watching because for those of you who have not seen it, um, I'm going to spoil it. This is Emma Stone stars as the protagonist named Olive, who is a high schooler who she, for some reason, lies to her friend about not wanting to go camping with her and instead says that she has a date with the community college guy. And when her friend comes back, she's like, well, how'd your date go? And she's like, oh, it was fine. You know, but she didn't have a date. This guy doesn't exist. And she's like, oh, you slept with him, didn't you? And for some reason, she's like, oh, yeah, I slept with him. You know, like she doesn't. But the uh, girl, like the, there's like this weird religious, almost like cult in her school. And the leader of that overhears her in the bathroom. And so it becomes this huge rumor that she's this big slut and that she's like sleeping with everybody. And so they're reading the scarlet letter in their high school class. So she like leans into this new identity and starts wearing lingerie to school with the scarlet letter sewn onto it. And then there is a, a, a friend of hers comes up to her who he is gay, but he's closeted and he wants to remain closeted because people are being terrible to him. And so he convinces her for a gift card to pretend to have sex with him in a bedroom at a, at a big high school party so that they like, it's a really, I'm, I'm assuming that's played for like lighthearted fun, not sad. Right. Depressing. Right, right. It's all Ooh. very hilarious. Um, and so they are pretending to have sex and like banging on the walls and moaning or whatever. And then when he walks out, he's getting all these high fives and she's like being shunned. Right. So like they're trying to show the double standard a little, um, but then word gets out that she'll do this. So like everybody is asking her to like pretend that they slept with them to like boost their cred or whatever. So it's this big, like, you know, sh her reputation is getting worse and worse and worse while the guys that are paying her in like at one point, a home Depot gift card to, to pretend that, that they slept detail? with her. Is that detail there to not make it as close as possible to prostitution? Oh, why don't they just pay her money? What's with the gift cards? It, I think it's like you know, they're high schoolers, so they don't have access to lots of money, but they can like, I don't know why they have access to Home Depot. I guess it's like- Gift the cards are hard to get sometimes. <laughs> so- You need money for that. Then there's this whole plot line where her English teacher is married to the guidance counselor. And it turns out that the guidance counselor is sleeping with the student who they go out of their way to mention has failed twice. So he's actually 20. So, you know, it's not illegal. Oh my God, stop it. Um, stop it with- uh. And Culture. so like, stop, she ends up, uh, Olive, our protagonist ends up telling the teacher, which, um, that, that 
his wife is cheating on him. So like, then she feels so bad that she's a homewrecker. I'm like, this is a predator. This is a sexual predator sleeping with a a high school boy who she has power over, whether he is 20 or not. Um, but anyway, so like, and, and that's not even the part of the movie that as I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, I I can't believe that I am going to have high schoolers watch this because all of that, I didn't remember all of that, but I remembered that like, it was, it was about sex and it was, you know, like kind of racy and I was okay with that, but it was just full of these really bizarre microaggressions for no reason. Like just throw away lines. So for instance, Olive, um, was Stanley Tucci. He plays her father. And, and it, it's in that vein, like, I think Juno maybe kicked this off where like the parents are so cool. Cause they're very witty and can, you know, like they, they, they talk very fast and with lots of witty puns. So they don't need to actually care about what their kids are doing because they're cool parents. Right. Like, um, there was a ton of those movies that had parents like that in it around this time. Right. So they're, they're very much yeah. in that vein and they have a, she has a little brother who is black and everybody else in the family is white. So like in the opening scene, he, I can't remember what they're talking about. They were talking about some sort of like genetic component or whatever. And he's like, but why would that matter for me? I'm adopted. And the dad's like, oh my God, you're adopted. Who told you? And like, it's a joke. Cause like he's black. And then Ooh. at the end of that scene, which that, that one was already, I was kind of already like, why is that in here? At the end of that scene, the kid goes, he sits down next to him. And this is literally just a throwaway line. It has nothing to do with any part of the plot whatsoever. He's like, so where are you from anyway? Which is like one of the classic microaggressions uh, like to say to a minority. And there's no reason for it. Like it's, you don't even get to hear how the child responds. That's just like how his father is interacting with him as the scene cuts to something else. And then So she opens this by saying that like, you know, it's that thing where like whatever you're learning in high school, that's what's happening to you in real life or whatever. She's like, and so of course it would, we would be reading the Scarlet Letter when this happened to me. But then there's a line in there like, except for when you're reading Huck Finn, because nobody really runs off with the hulking black guy. What? Right? Like what, why did, why would you say that? And then at the end, the guy who was trying to remain in the closet, the one who started the whole thing, um, he they're like, well, he did run off with the hulking black guy. So my apologies to Mark Twain because he like came out and then like left town or whatever. So they show a scene of him in a hotel room with just like a teenage black child. Like not like, it it was just. Ew, no. Right, right. It was just so And that doesn't have, I don't remember those parts at all. That's nothing to do. Why, why, why include? So I had already assigned this to oh Michelle, I'm sorry <laughs> to my class of very social justice minded, attentive, outspoken teenagers. Oh no! And so I was watching it a week ahead of them to make the guide, and I was like, oh my god! I'm like, what do I do? Do I pull this? What can I have them watch instead? Like, what do I do? And so I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. Like, it's they can handle it. Like, I'm just going to be mature about it. And so I wrote, I, I put up a link that had a bunch of articles about microaggressions. Um, and I was like, I think we can have some good conversations about yeah, how that has, could open it up. Yeah. How have standards yeah. changed in 10 years? Um, but then I had a couple of students who were like, Hey, after you talked about this and reading the plot, like, I'm just really not comfortable watching it. And I was like, cool. 
here are three articles about public shame in the age of social media. You read those instead, and we'll just talk about that. And so, like, we we had a really good conversation. Um, and most of them did watch it. A few of them didn't. Um, but we all kind of talked about shame and, like, what does it mean to shame somebody during the age of social media? And can shame ever be a good thing? And how do you use it to uphold boundaries versus when are you just jumping into the mob? And it is fine. But, like, I just, this movie it gets good reviews. Like even on like Rotten Tomatoes, it was rated high. And there were, there were quite a few people saying like, it shouldn't have been rated PG 13. But um, one of my students, their research actually uncovered that it originally wasn't because it had the F word as a slur, the, the slur F word, not the, not fuck. I'll say that one. Um, and I say that all day long. <laughs> yeah. Um, it had the F word as a slur a whole bunch of times and that they like intentionally added in the like, no, the kid is 20 as part of the like getting it down to PG-13 rating. Mm. Um, and so it just, which, which then I'm like, who was this made for? Because if it's not rated PG-13, then nobody over the age or under the age of 17 is supposed to see it. And who over the age of 17 is like, yeah, let me go watch this movie about these high schoolers. Like, it's just, it's very clearly a teen movie. So who were they trying to target and then all these bizarre microaggressions like it was it was just a very strange experience it seems to me why have her brother be adopted and be black if you're gonna be so shitty with it right what what is the point the point of that maybe makes me think they wanted more diversity in the movie but then like it doesn't it's not that that's not good representation matters, but not if you're going to have shitty microaggressions about that character. So it made me think of, have you seen I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry? No. Okay. No, and I will not. Have you? Why? I mean, I I just saw it when it came out when I was in college. Like, it was like, oh, you know, this is the Adam Sandler comedy or whatever. And I remember people being like, oh, it's so nice that we have this diversity on, on, on screen now. And I mean, it is. And it had tons of like out LGBT like actors in it. And like it was it was probably one of the most like visibility in a mainstream setting for people who were who were out at the time but it was just so full of horrible stereotypes and terrible jokes and um i think they did a how did this get made the podcast um do you know that podcast i love that podcast i think they did one on it and like they're like what were we thinking um and so maybe it's just maybe easy a i mean i want to believe that 2010 wasn't that backward and that just including these very minor characters of color to be like, well, they're on the screen could have felt like an okay move, but like, have we really come that far in 11 years? Maybe, but it definitely did not age well. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what year did Mean Girls come out? Mean Girls? I, th- I feel like that was earlier. Oh, 2004. And that one holds up. That's not yeah. full of... Oh, we're going to watch 10 Things I Hate About You. And that came out in 99 and it holds up. That's a great movie. Oh, Heath Ledger in that. Woo. But I think maybe I'm developing a teeny theory, which is things got really, maybe things got worse before they got better. And like between 2009 and 2013, 
Well, but to be I'm, fair, neither 10 Things I Hate About You nor Mean Girls has much diversity or representation in it. That's so, true. Like, so maybe we had no diversity and no representation and then had bad diversity and bad representation to make way for productive diversity and representation. Yeah. So easy A. Good job. Yeah, I mean, we, we ended up having a really good conversation. I just worry, like, how many parents walked by as their kids were watching this <laughs> for my class? I'm like, it's what are school. they doing? <laughs> it's for school. She's getting paid for not sex and gift cards for school. <laughs> okay. So my pop culture thing, it's going to be very quick. It's going to be more of a recommendation than anything. It comes from what I did last week. My parents came to visit me and I was like, what can I do with them in town? And I found in Manitou Springs, which we learned last fortnight, home of Emma Crawford, spooky Emma Crawford. They had a ghost stories of old Manitou walking tour. And it's done for the season, but it was friggin' delightful. It was amazing. And it was not what I expected. It wasn't walking all around, but basically there's a big park in Manitou Springs and they started you off and they had arranged really well lit, super good costuming, good acting vignettes. There were like nine vignettes and you had a tour guide. Mine was dressed like a plague doctor and had a voice um, box amplifier that made him sound like Kylo Ren. And I love Adam Driver, so that was fun. And that person takes you from vignette to vignette. And it was like, it started with Emma Crawford's mom, who really, they were spiritualists, like I talked about. And after Emma Crawford died, her mom got even more into spiritualism. So it had a very cool narrative premise I wasn't expecting, where we started by being introduced to Emma Crawford's mom, She was going to show us the spirit realm. She messed up the spell. We were stuck in the spirit realm until we got an item from each ghost. And so every vignette, they made sure to somehow throw out into the audience the thing you needed. And we put it in a pumpkin. And at the end, that's also where you could give tips. So it was a nice way of doing that. But it was so great. I learned so much about this area I live in that I didn't know before. And it was delightful. And so... I just want it reminded me of my very good friend Jeff when I was living in Australia, came to visit me in Sydney. And when he got there, he said, Does Sydney have a ghost tour? And I'm like, What? And it sounded kind of hokey to me. And I'm like, Why would you want to go on ghost tour? But he told me that every time he visits a new place, and if he has time, he finds that place's ghost tour. And it is, it is because the ghost tour in Sydney was so different from the ghost tour in Manitou Springs, not just about what you learn, but how it's even formatted. And I just think that's a really cool thing. And after being now on the two ghost tours in my life, I'm going to endorse that. I think you can learn so much about a place. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just just history filtered through this particular kind of narrative, right? Like more, they're usually outdoors. So they're pretty safe these days. And I love it. It was, it was, I have not had that much fun in a long time. So I'm going to just say for, is that pop culture? Sure. Ghosts are very pop culture. Um, It's entertainment. If you, 
even if it's live theater. Yeah, exactly. Even if it's um, a city you live in, like go find out about your city that way. Cause doing that for Manitou Springs was really cool. Ghost tours, pop culture, basta. Are you ready? Wow. Okay. So here we go. We've, we've been keeping it on a clip. Now let's go. Let's cause mine is all, my research is also very long. So I got to my research thing because I have a garage for the first time in my life. I've never had a garage before. Um, I've had this one for like the four years, four years. Yeah. Four years I've been living in this house I do absolutely nothing with it. Our cars won't fit in it if because they're I don't which is crazy to me because cars have gotten shorter. So what cars ever did fit in this garage? Ooh, like yeah. if we pull our cars into the garage, we have to climb over the hood to get out of the garage. So we just don't. We just park in the street, right? Um and so we keep the shell of our lawnmower in it because we have an electric lawnmower. So the batteries aren't even out there like the valuable part. It's just like the the shell part of the lawnmower. And the trash that won't fit in the dumpster. That's that's what lives in our garage. And um, it feels like a real waste of space because my backyard's pretty small. It's an urban backyard. And I'm like, man, this giant garage is just not giant enough to hold a car, but giant enough to take up a nice chunk of my backyard real estate. And um, so I want to renovate it, but I, I hate, 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 hate those kinds of projects. And anytime that I've tried to do it, I get asked like 10,000 questions like, well, what color of off-white do you want this part? And what kinds of handles? I'm like, I don't care. I hired you just make it work. Like I don't, I don't care. And so like, I really am trying to find a contractor where I can be like, this is what I need this space to be like. You have free reign. Here's your budget. Just turn it into that. Right. Like I, it's, like you just need to be on some reality makeover show. It I want like the reality the makeover way. people without having to be on the reality makeover without show. being on TV. Yes. That yes. seems like the only way to get this done. And I want it to be weird because, well, maybe, maybe that's kind of my research thing. Actually, I don't want it to be a garage. I want to turn it into like a classroom, a meeting space. So I like, if I'm dreaming big, like maybe it could have some space where if I need to make videos, cause I do videos for classes, like I could have some different backgrounds and stuff or, uh, but mostly it would be like, if I'm going to teach a class with kids in person, I could have a place to do that. Right. Like a, that could hold yeah, like, that seems brilliant. You know, 12, 15 kids. And, um, we could do, we could do classes out there. Right. Or if I needed to have a meeting for work, those sorts of things. So kind of a, an office e space. So, but I'm having trouble because I'm like every, every contractor that I look up, all of their samples are just very garagey garages, you know, like it, like maybe they've got like tool benches and stuff in them, but they're not, they're not what I am envisioning. And I'm like, I'm very afraid that if I call these people, you're gonna be like, so you want your garage run. And yeah. then I'm going to have to be like making all the, and I'm like, I don't want to make decisions. I just want I want you to understand what I need and then you do the execution and visioning and all of that. Right. But anyway, so garages were on my mind. So I started, I was like, what, what? I wonder like what's going on? Like, you know, when did garages start and how is this, how, what does the garage mean? So now I'm very intrigued about your garage problem and I want there to be a solution. You, so you haven't found a solution. I have not found a solution. If you find a solution, let me know. 
Keep us posted, okay? So I found, do you know Pinup Magazine? Pinup? Like pinups? It, well, it's just called Pinup Magazine. I don't. Um, and this is the first time that I had ever heard of it. I think it's like an architecture magazine. Let me let me pull it up so I can see there about because this article was super interesting. See, and my then, mind went to pinups because you said garage, and I'm thinking of like dudes in their man cave having pinup posters. So I was like, are we talking about soft core pornography? No, I mean I did just talk about Easy A, so I can understand why you would why you would go there. You you have put my mind in the gutter. This is it's, your fault. The magazine for architectural entertainment. Woo. Um, and I don't, I've only read two articles by them ever, but I'm going to talk about both of them in this research thing. And they were both very architecturally entertaining. So they have held up for what they said they would do so far. So I found this article from Pennant Magazine called, I just had it up and then I put it down again, called The History of the Garage from Frank Lloyd Wright, The Great Migration to Modern Day Suburbia. Oh, this, I didn't even realize this is by the people who the other article is about. Okay. Um, so this article is by Olivia Erlanger and Louise Ortega Govella, who are going to come up again soon. Um, so they have this article about the history of the garage and their history of the garage article is very fascinating. So basically I pulled out three separate threads from what they said that I want to talk about each one that I did a little bit of additional research into. So the first one, I'm just going to read a quote. Thread one, on a fundamental level, the car restructured the relationship between space and time, but it also entered our cultural consciousness in a much more proximate way. Our relationship with cars became so intimate that they were treated like pets, humanized, given a name and room in our house. The influence of power this machine had on the rituals of life imbued it with a soul and the ghost in the machine was created. The machine was not invented to have autonomy. Rather, it was a piece of metal under our control, feeding back into the psyche of patriarchal capitalism in which the ego is exerted into everything and everyone around you, forming a ventriloquist dummy dichotomy. In essence, the dream of suburban reproduction was embodied in the car-human relationship. I love that writing. That's good. So- this first thread is just about how the garage, as we know it today, is a fairly recent invention because it was very functionally, oh, we have these cars we love and we need a place to put them. <laughs> it was dog houses for cars. Yeah, yeah. And so they talk about um, how other rooms in our house evolved from earlier things, like how having a bathroom was initially just, you know, like a chamber pot. And then it was like, oh, we should put some privacy around our chamber pot. And then it was like, oh, we should invent indoor plumbing for hygienic reasons. And then eventually we get these, you know, bathrooms, some of which today are like really elaborate spa-like experiences with lounges and things in them, right? So this idea that the bathroom went from like literally a pot for you to put your excrement into this like spa luxury experience has been this translation over time. Right. Um, and that garages have kind of also done that. They started out very practically, like we need a place to park this car so it will be safe. Um, but now they represent as thread three will show us quite a bit more to like what, what and who humans are. So um, thread two is the way that the garage was used as part of a syst systematic racial segregation policy by the U.S. government. So um, in 1934, the FHA was created and it was designed because we were, you know, 
the Great Depression had tanked both employment and banks, and they were both struggling. And um, so Keller Easterling wrote that the FHA, what it, the invention of the FHA turned houses into a kind of currency. And because houses then became a kind of currency, FHA policy was specifically designed to de-incentivize urban living. So they didn't want any kind of row houses and they only qualified people for detached single family housing. And they could not qualify for an FHA mortgage if the house did not have a garage. <gasps> Ew. Ew, indeed. Is this why we are all burdened with these structures? In our backyards that we don't know what to do with except store garbage in? Well, yeah, and that that's where, that, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> By 1949, the FHA's policies promoting suburban living and racial segregation got very, very overt. So this is, um, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I think it's Katie Najimbadem. Najimbadem. She wrote a book called The Color of Law or Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It came out in 2017. And she explains that Truman, President Truman, wanted an enormous housing project because coming out of World War II, materials had been restricted. So you could only use them for um, the war, right? And so there weren't enough houses. So there was a huge housing shortage. And cons- wait, wait. we're just very in sync this week. Sorry, everyone, I'm laughing. Oh, yes. I'm like, why is this funny? Thing. This is not funny, Catherine. I'm sorry. It's not funny at all. It's just, you'll see. <laughs> You'll okay. See. Okay. <laughs> oh, ha ha ha! Housing crisis. Ha ha! It's so funny that there was a housing shortage. Okay. Um. So, yeah. So there weren't enough houses. Conservatives did not want the government involved in the private housing market. So conservatives put in an amendment that said, "Quote." From now on, that public housing could not discriminate, understanding that if Northern liberals joined conservatives in passing that amendment, Southern Democrats would abandon the public housing program and uh, along with conservative Republicans defeat the bill entirely. So they said, we'll make it where you can't segregate in housing anymore, specifically so the bill will fail. And liberals in Congress fought against the integration amendment led by civil rights opponents, resulting in a 1949 housing program that permitted segregation. So they, the liberals actively fought For segregation. segregation in the 1949 housing policy. And this is uh, still quoting from um, that author. When the civilian housing industry picked up in the 1950s, the federal government subsidized mass production builders to create suburbs on conditions that those homes in the suburbs be sold only to whites. No African-Americans were permitted to buy them, and the FHA often added an additional condition requiring that every deed in a home in those subdivisions prohibit resale to African-Americans. And so this is, you know, like if you've um, seen A Raisin in the Sun, or uh, there's a really good book called Mapping Decline that's about the- such a good book. And these are these policies that they're talking about, right? And these are often policies that you can see you can literally see traced out in urban areas, right? Like oftentimes um, highways were used in a way to cut access off and just create. So, but garages were part of that policy. Garages were used to help enforce those intentionally racially segregated policies and to build suburban America because suburban America was seen as the safe haven from, um, from having to integrate in any way, right? Because they could they could have an entire neighborhood where only 
white people were allowed to buy so they could be guaranteed that they wouldn't have to live in an integrated neighborhood. Um, so there's that part of garages. And then there's thread three, which I did not realize until right now. Thread three is about a book and documentary made by the people who wrote the first article I mentioned. So uh, there's a documentary and a book called Simply Garage by Olivia Erlanger and Louise Ortega Govella. And it is described as, quote, a strange amalgamation of characters, weed dealing nuns, actress Aubrey Plaza, and a live-in sex slave all make appearances, even just in this rough cut, around half the running time of the eventual feature. And so they have done this deep dive into what people are using their garages for. And there's this weird culture of garage use where people have started using them in either entrepreneurial ways or in ways to kind of have their secret lives or their lives that they don't quite want in their home, but they also don't want in public. And so it's this really fascinating look at like, what does the garage mean today? Like what is, what does a modern garage mean? So while garage, the book argues that the garage and its attendant material and political concerns from zoning laws to automatic doors were a product of the normalization of heterosexual white suburbia. The film picks up this narrative in our current era where when homeownership is on the decline. According to Erlinger, the adaptation is about, quote, the underside of life and the characters are all people who are overlooked. Fourth wave garagedom is not for cars and not exactly for upstarts or bands either, but for that which can't fit in the home. Quote from Erlanger again, there's a lot of different people who look to the garage as a space of refuge because their identities never fit into a mainstream. So naturally, in making a film about a garage, we are going to meet people who don't fit into the norm. And it really is gratifying because I just think that we're giving space and platform to people who are complex. While the book focuses on the patriarchal power of the garage, the film examines American life ways that they believe are increasingly matriarchal. Ooh, but of course it's Carr's fault. Cars and racism. Cars and racism. I hate about this country, I think, can be summed up by cars and racism. Well, and then even once we kind of got away from the cars and racism, it became like, well, you got to do your startup. You know, like Google started in a garage. Apple started in a garage. Garage band is like such a thing. That does make me think, and and (laughs) I'm going to give myself a pass to put my mind back in the gutter a little with pinup. But that sounds like an amazing project, the Garage Project book and movie. And it really reminds me, especially since that was like you said, 1949 around then, the way that that seems to be such an important time for how America now kind of got concretized. Like it, this came to be. And there's an amazing, amazing book. It's one of my favorite books called Pornotopia. And it's by Paul Precchiato. And it's Pornotopia colon, an essay on Playboy's architecture and biopolitics. Sure, why not? It's amazing. It's like really about how Playboy wasn't just like the first pornographic popular magazine in America. It came to embody a new lifestyle through these utopian multimedia spaces. And it really changed the way space and gender within the home was thought of in ways you wouldn't even imagine. Pornotopia. Pornotopia. Sorry, I just, I'm not going to be a good, I, this that made me think of so much. It's so interesting. And I cannot form my thoughts. I had dental <laughs> surgery today. I'm sorry, everyone. 
Not at Target. I Michelle thought I got my dental surgery at Target, but I did not. <laughs> I mean, I mean. They do almost everything. It, it's only a matter of time. I want to start my research thing by asking you, when you were in college, what was your living situation? The first two years, I lived in a dorm. Um, I lived in the honors dorm. It was very fun. We had a really, really, really good floor. I'm lots of I'm still friends with a lot of the people who were there. Uh, the first year was just freshmen, so it was like a freshman floor. The That's second a year, good idea. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. My school did not do that. The second year, I so I went home for a rough summer. I went home for a summer between those two. And then I never went back home for another summer. Um, I came back to college and went to the same honors dorm, but to the upperclassmen version of it. And that summer I got an apartment with two roommates and my now husband basically moved in with us too, even though technically he had an apartment of his own, but he was never in it so much so that one night we were like, Oh, we'll just go to, maybe we should go to your apartment, you know, just kind of mix up. But we went there and like his roommates had filled it with boxes and they were like, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> we didn't. his bedroom had become the garage. Yes, the yes. <laughs> it was so random. Um, and then, so we lived there for a year and then he and I got an apartment together for our senior year. And yeah, that was I forget our- how long you have been with your partner. A very long time. <laughs> very long time. Yeah, no, we met as freshmen college in college. So sweethearts. Yeah. Um, what would, what did your dorm room look like basically? I got a single room which, to yourself. To myself. Nice. It had nice. we had a shared bathroom between, you know, there was I had two suite mates, but there's a bathroom that linked us. It was just a basically a cinder block square. <laughs> okay. It's not very appealing. I want to set, set the scene. I, um, I don't, I did a very similar thing, which is my first year. I went to school in St. Louis university, which is in like a pretty compact urban space and the campus, which you are very familiar with, you know, all this, this is not for you, Michelle, but the listeners, um, they, the architecture is very disparate. They like buy up buildings in the area. Some of them never should have been residential buildings to begin with, but they just turned them into them. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, also known for having the building where the exorcism from the exorcist happened. The real story of the exorcist happened on that campus in a building. But my first year was actually pretty lucky because it was an old best Western hotel that they had converted into dorms. So again, we had like our own bathroom, which was really nice. I ask you this because today I want to talk about, I want to ask you if you have heard the news about dormzilla. Dormzilla? No. Okay. I'm very excited. And I apologize for how long my research is going to go on, but it is called Munger Hall and it is a $1.5 billion planned box on the University of California, Santa Barbara's campus. And it's going to house more than 4,500 students. Oh, I did see this. Okay, sorry. Please continue. But yes, yes, yes I did see this. I just did not, I did not know the dormzilla terminology for it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's, that's what the goods are calling it. The building, this giant, giant building to house thousands of students was funded and planned by a billionaire philanthropist, Charles Munger. And I'm, it's very interesting because it was under the condition that they would build this building the way he wanted it and not change any specifications. And I'll get into him a little bit later, but he has butted heads. He says, architects hate me because he's kind of like a hobbyist architect, but it was hard to find a lot on him. And that made me think of a really good podcast. I don't know if you've heard it called Zero Sum Empire. Mm -mm. It's excellent. It's basically a podcast by two professors who every week they choose a billionaire and find out as much as they can about them because they realize that most billionaires are very private and that's for good reason. And well, you know, good reason for the billionaires, but they just try to uncover as much as they can about them. And you learn just fascinating things. Um, to the best of my knowledge, Charles Munger has not been on the podcast. And what I can find out about him is he is a 97 year old billionaire who was Warren Buffett's right-hand man for a long time. And that's about it. Where he went to school is available. Well, you did find his picture. Yes. <laughs> I texted you. I didn't give away any information, but I looked up his picture and when I saw it, I went, yeah, that seems right for a weird, dubious, he, evil. He looks like man. if you did one of those like AI face mashups of Mitch McConnell and the Monopoly guy. Exactly. Oh, that's perfectly said, Michelle. And so when I saw his face, when I was doing my research, I had to text you and I didn't tell you who it was or what. I was like, isn't just, just the face. This is the face of an evil billionaire. Yeah, I think he is. So this dorm is would house, it's being built right now. It's planned to be built. It would house 4,500 students and about 1.68 million square feet of space. And it had been a local issue for years, but it just got a lot of attention this last week because the main architect for it, Dennis McFadden, resigned and he wrote a long letter of resignation giving his reasons. And in his resignation letter, he said things like, he called it a social and psychological experiment with an unknown impact on the lives and personal development of the undergraduates. He also said the project was unsupportable from my perspective as an architect, a parent, and a human being. The so human he, being. A human being. There are problems with this giant building, like it's total reliance on energy consuming artificial environmental systems, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, means that the building is not passively habitable. If there's a power outage, it has to be evacuated really quickly. And there are only two entrances and two exits. That's the building. part that I saw. And I was like, how is that? I mean, that can't be to code, right? Right. You have 4,500 people. If there's a fire, the power goes out. And it's not even just a fire. Like this fact that if the power goes out, it is such a self-contained system that even for things like oxygen and healthy air, you have to get them out. And he also said in his resignation letter, that the building would qualify as the eighth densest neighborhood on the planet, falling just short of Dhaka, Bangladesh. Others have said 
architecture critic Paul Goldberger called it a jail masquerading as a dorm and a human rights violation. So the main reason people are freaking out about this project is on the plus side, students get single rooms. It's all single rooms. But to do that, there are no windows. So students are in this small, small cube and they don't have windows. None, I think, I think like 96% of the rooms will not have windows. Or air they can breathe without artificial yeah, that's circulation. Why if, that's why if the power goes out, you got to get them out of there. Um, and there's been so much research architecturally um, in urban planning papers. There's been so much research on how bad it is for people to not have windows or adequate lighting. And one study, a more recent one I found in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health by um, Alawapumi Asabona, Bethlehem, Solomon, Daniel Effect, et al. You know, these articles have, it said poor housing is an important determinant of poor health. One key aspect of housing quality is lighting. Light is important for visual performance and safety and plays a vital role in regulating human physiological functions. So they did take into account that houses and areas that don't have adequate lighting tend to be poorer areas. And so they said they accounted for that with issues of health and lower income problems. And after they took that into effect, households with adequate sunlight were 94% less likely to be diagnosed with tuberculosis, leprosy, the rates of falls in elderly people decreased significantly. So if you don't have adequate lighting, things like household accidents, respiratory infections, breast cancer, visual health, obesity, diabetes, dys dyslipidemia, blood pressure, heart function, anxiety, mood disorders, all of these things, sleep apnea, all more likely if you don't have a window or adequate lighting. Well, you mentioned sleep apnea. Like, I wonder how many of those risk factors go up just because you can't sleep right if you don't right. get sunlight, right? Yeah, there have been reports um, by students in other buildings, which we'll get to, that says it just within a week, their circadian rhythm is gone. And they fall into these deep depressions that if they can't see what time it is outside, their bodies freak out. I learned that because he has, Charles Munger has done this many times. This, this is like third or fourth time of giving a ton of money to a university and then forcing them to build very packed in prison-like no window dorms. Why? I know, right? I, I want to talk about why more. And I learned that because he was like, well, the one I, the one dorm I did at the University of Michigan, maybe, I, I don't regret not putting windows in that. We don't need windows because then you can't pack people in. But he regrets not doing what he's doing at this one, which sounds F word crazy to me because the plan for this one at UC Santa Barbara is that there will be fake 
simulated windows in the rooms, the model they're copying for fake simulated windows in the dorm room comes from Disney Cruises because Disney Cruises also has to cram as many people in a space as they can. And so most of the rooms on a Disney cruise these days have these fake portal windows and they basically work. They're like a high definition live I've read video about these. feed yeah. from the outside of the ship. So you're seeing what's happening outside of the ship. It's like an LED screen, but every now and then, like an animated starfish will come and wink at your child or Rapunzel will pop up, which would scare me so much. I don't want that. Um, Royal Caribbean does it too, because cruise ships are like densely packed areas. They they have a whole freaking simulated balcony on Royal Caribbean. And the images of these are wild. So that's like Charles Munger's solution is we'll make them like Disney cruises, fake windows for the students. But James Wyatt, the chief of behavioral sleep medicine at the Rush University Medical Center said college students are already the most vulnerable age bracket for disrupted circadian rhythm and artificial windows will not have help with that. He says that they're just a proxy. Their circadian rhythms are still going to be messed up. And he said, it was just staggering to me to take this vulnerable population of young adults and expose them to an environment depriving them of daily time cues of the light dark cycle. It's absolutely, in my opinion, as a scientist with decades studying these issues, reckless. Also, just from a very practical standpoint, if you're in a building where if the power goes out, you have to evacuate all of the 4,000 people in it through two doors Maybe you don't want to load it up with so many power requiring devices. Right. right. So for their part, UC Santa Barbara says on their website, the housing will do three important things. It will focus on providing ample interactive spaces for students. A lot of the space that could have gone to window full dorm rooms is going to like public areas. Charles Munger's really big on like social interaction. People need to see each other face to face more. So there's a lot of interactive spaces, but that's nothing new. Most colleges have that and still manage to give their students windows. It'll minimize costs by maximizing the number of beds on a given site. And it provides amenities for students on site. It's gonna be all self-contained. It'll have a market, a gym, bakery, theater, educational spaces are in this building it's planned so you know you would think oh the joy of this is don't be in your room much go out on campus but the idea is also to have classes in this building and you eat in this building so you're never going outside and again this isn't the first time he's done this which is fascinating for me he's like it's not about donating money to any one school it's about getting these buildings onto campuses he did it at the University of Michigan. He did it at Stanford. And it sounds like, I'm sorry for bothering you when they're doing the like, you can come live on our campus and, and then you will have a job. We don't pay you in money, but here you can like, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's really disturbing. It's very disturbing. Very disturbing. He says he just wants to promote his architectural ideas of collaboration and what kind of house does he live in? Right? I'm sure it has lots of windows. 
So he, basically the rooms are a sleep pod and you're supposed to be around other people all the time is yeah. It's like the stupid, oh my, as an introvert who really, 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 really needs focus to get things done. Those like open office ideas where it's like, everybody just uh, needs to be together all the time. I'm like, no, we no, no, don't. And no. I like, I like collaborating with people and, and like working on projects as a group and, and thinking things through. But, um, I, I was abruptly moved from a private office into an open, um, space one. And I almost quit. Like, I was like, I cannot, like, I cannot function. Like I am the most miserable that I have ever been in my life. They finally went and like found me like some cubicle walls and just built them around me because oh. I was, I was losing my mind. I was like, I am so upset all of the time. Like I am, I have never been this miserable. It seems like, it seems like it is an experiment in sociology and psychology or some, something related to prisons. I I'm very concerned or a way to just ruin colleges another way or a way to have these buildings built for some other purpose he says when asked about this he's like hey, this is a quote from charles munger everybody loves light and everybody prefers natural light but it's a game of trade-offs oh is if it you, if you build a big square building everything is conveniently near to everybody in the building if you maximize the light you get fewer people in the building I, that sounds like the opposite of a trade-off. That sounds like a win-win, especially in a world where like, as you're talking about this, like we literally have a pandemic that has shut down colleges that for two years. That was my next point. And then you're the talking one- about the, like, this is, this is in California, right? Yeah. Like how many natural disasters hit there if students right? are going to have to be evacuated? Like, wh- what are you doing? Students that live in the Michigan one, said that during COVID, it was a nightmare. It was just the most horrific time they've ever- Because all those public spaces would be shut down. Exactly. They were shut down. And then the rooms are very small. They have no windows. And if students had to self-isolate in these no window, no real air boxes- Well, and I bet that air was all circulating. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So in, in another class I'm teaching, we're reading Google It, A History of Google by Anna Crowley Redding, which it's 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 for middle schoolers. And it's a good book, but it's very Google positive. Like it's a very like, oh, look how cool is Google it? is book. So, but there's a whole chapter on like how Google's cool work culture. And it, and it's it has this like, oh, and it has all the amenities there for you. They've got gyms, they've got restaurants, they've got, and I'm like, they want you to never leave. Like it's it's about not being able to have any, freedom or work-life balance that the the dark side of all that positive spin and I just like I don't know like I like community and collectivism and people getting together and doing things together but Google does do a cool thing called the 20% rule now obviously this is to their own benefit everybody gets one day a week to work on whatever they want that's where a lot of Google's projects have come from and I think that's just like, it's, it's cool. Like they don't, they don't like require them to, to meet any particular metrics during that time. And if it fails, it's fine. And now obviously if it works, Google owns it, not the person who was working right, on it, right. but, <laughs> but they're paying them. I mean, you know, they're. Yeah. I feel like that would be a model that would be really good in many, many, many environments. The intellectual property thing does get a little scary, but yeah. But 
some people are arguing that Charles Munger is leading the way. He is a hero. And this is absolutely a good thing. Leading what way? That's about housing crises, the housing Uh. crisis, especially in California. Like the housing crisis is everywhere in the U.S., but California has it especially bad. In 2019, the median home price was over 600000 And that's twice the national average. And California is 12% of the U.S. population, but 25% of its homeless population. Now, I don't think the answer is like buildings like this, but it's been said by people who are in support of this, quote, it is time not to just build this storm, but to build this storm nearly everywhere from the housing hate mean streets of San Francisco to downtown Los Angeles to the stupid subject suburbs of Westchester. Mint the coin, build the hive, let's save the future. Or we could stop letting a bunch of corporations buy up all the houses. Right? This whole, Z- I just keep thinking about the Zillow thing where Zillow right? bought too many houses and they can't unload them. Just like go let people live their housing crisis bullshit. Sorry. Um, Some say that the students are like really happy to have their own rooms, even if they don't have windows. And there has been many articles recently that the University of California system, especially Santa Barbara, because housing is so difficult and space is so difficult to find in California, that many students are living out of their cars, are effectively homeless because they can't get affordable on-campus housing. They asked Charles Munkler if he plans on doing more of these. Like that person said, build them everywhere. And his response was, no, I won't do it. I'm ready to die very shortly. Hmm. Okay. Okay. He said, but I do expect the storm will be copied more times on the UCSB campus and many more times that on other campuses on the UC system. I expect this to spread all over the country. It's a better mousetrap. I think I've gone on too long because that wasn't even my research. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Research. I know. I am going to, I'm not going to do the rest as long as I thought because I have like three more pages of notes. Um, This wasn't, I just was interested. I'm really interested in these. Um, We've talked about Prudigo on this before, which you now have artwork about. I I saw. But I haven't talked about Le Corbusier and within modern architecture, this idea. And he's an architect. He has very cool glasses. He worked like mid 1900s. He was very, very, very obsessed with how to create better living conditions for residents of crowded cities. And he realized this in several instances. He prepared the master plan for Shandigar in India. He designed that city. And his planning, the criticisms are that he's very indifferent to pre-existing structures, cultural sites. He wrote a book called Towards an Architecture, and probably one of the more famous lines that embodies his architectural style is, a house is a machine to live in. It's not more than that. It's not less than that. And so he wanted to do away with like the decorative arts. I was going to go into his five points of modern architecture theory. I'm not. He planned out a new design for Paris called the Plan Voisin 
which by the way, I could also go on and on and on about why Paris looks the way it does, about why its streets are so big. I'm obsessed with that. I may have probably talked about that on this podcast. Do you know why Paris is? Paris has very wide streets. It was redesigned by someone named Hausmann. His last name is Hausmann. And it was known as the Hausmannization of Paris. The main part of that plan was these giant, he built it in blocks and big blocks instead of street by street. And the streets are really, really wide. And why do you think that is? I don't know. It was redone after the French Revolution. And one of the ways the the people that were anti-government fighting against the government and the French Revolution, the people actually were much more successful because they could barricade the very small streets and they could make a bottleneck for the soldiers and that really helped them fight against the tyrannical government. And then the government said, never again. We will have wide streets that you cannot block. No matter how much, how much lame is shit you throw in those streets, you are not going to barricade them. Anyway, um, he wanted to redesign Paris. Um, The closest he got to that was a planet and exposition. He built a model and everyone thought his model was so ugly. They built a fence around it and he had to (laughs) call the minister of culture to get the fence taken around at this Paris exposition. They built a fence around his model. Yes. It was too ugly. (laughs) Take it away. He wrote about like these plans that a house is a cell within the body of a city And the cell is made up of vital elements, which are the mechanics of a house. Decorative art is anti-standardization. And our pavilion, which got a fence put up around it, will contain only standard things created by industry and factories and mass-produced objects. Oh, this sounds awful. Yep. But he finally was able to do this in real life in 1926. He was commissioned to build a complex for worker housing. That's a whole other fascinating thing, like factory towns and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, so interesting. But here's why I wanted to bring like Corbusier up. How Every apartment complex, these are basically apartment every complexes. Every cell. Every cell he designed had a terrace garden setting, a private one, a private terrace garden setting where you could not only have a window, but you could go outside and have some small space outside. And this is coming from the man who says we don't need any decorations. Right. But we need outside. So even like Corbusier, this fascist friend of Mussolini knew how important light and air was. And even for a worker camp, basically. Exactly. Exactly. He called this idea the radiant city. They're known as the units de habitation. And so he did, I think, four or five of these kind of radiant cities. Every single one of these had outdoor spaces, private and public, a park and private terraces. They are still used. And there's been slight redesigns to most of them, but they're still in commission. And they were built in like the 40s and 50s. So I think that's pretty impressive when we talk about these kind of cramped in urban housing projects, that his are some of the only ones that have really stood the test of time. But people do hate living in them. They complain. Yeah, that was that was very long. But no, that was fascinating. I am. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Go outside. 
I know we've already gone on, but like, I think that an air thing that connects the R2 research things is that whenever I try to get any renovations done, like everybody is always talking about like the resale value, the resale value. Well, you need to do this or so that people who want, I'm like, I'm not trying to sell this house. Like I, I hate moving and I need a place to live. So like, I want to live in the house that I want to live in. And if the next person who buys it, however many years from now that is, doesn't like it, I guess that they'll have to change it because I'm not going to design my house with the person who might eventually live here someday after me in mind. Like, that's insane to me. I live here. A house I want is to a design machine it. for living it. Live it. <laughs> I don't think that's what he meant, but still. <laughs> Okay, let's recap. For weird things, we had Blashko's lines, which are lines we can't see, patterns on stripes and splotches on our body, but our cats can see them. And then I talked about how most cheetahs have emotional support dogs these days, and dogs are going to save cheetahs from extinction. I talked about Easy A and how it did not age well. And I talked about the joy of ghost tours. And for research things, I talked about the history of garages. And I talked about Charles Munger, 97-year-old billionaire's dormzilla. And kind of briefly, not very briefly at all, Le Corbusier's ideas for public housing as well. Okay, so you were saying. Okay, I feel like these work surprisingly well in pairs. Like our weird things go together in a stupid way where it's like stripes and patterns and humans have it like cheetahs too. <laughs> like, well, like cheetah print and then their bodies. And, and they both have to do with cross species interactions. Yeah, yeah. Cause cats can see. So cross species interactions. I'm thinking like you can't change your stripes, but like the cheetahs are changing. Their spots aren't changing, but they are changing because of the dogs. So that doesn't work. And then I think our research fits very well together, right? It's so much about um, architectural, urban living stuff. Pop culture, though. (laughs) Pop culture. Well, that, but like that doesn't fit with support dogs in their research. And then pop culture of things not, well, things not holding up. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's kind of about like surprising history in a way. Like you really enjoyed the ghost tours because of the history that they brought, but this was like a glimpse into what we found acceptable 10 years ago. And I was like, Ooh, we were, yeah, we were not good. The past on the past haunted you in a different way. Yes. Yes, it did. I feel like the past haunting you would be a great connecting through line, but it just doesn't work no. for. It only like, works for the pop culture things. I I think I could get our weird things to connect to our research things. Okay. You do that. And then I'll put pop culture in go. Okay. All right. I think, oh, give me just a second. Let me think about it for a minute. Oh, she has, she has the pen, the yeah, pen yeah. touching your face. That's a real thinking that's position. A thinking, that's a thinking posture. I don't think I've seen you think so seriously about anything. 
I mean, not ever. anything in your life ever. I, mean, I never think the- seriously about anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you do um, <laughs> on this podcast. You're a Gemini, Michelle. It's, it's your life. Um. So I think that there's something about being comfortable in your own skin kind of thing, but in a way that almost has like a biological component to it. Like, cause when you start talking about like needing to be outside and like literally needing sunlight in order to sleep, right? Like, it's not just to like be happy with who you are. It is also like a get your needs met on a biological level, right? Because, um, the emotional support dogs for the cheetahs are changing their behavior. It's not like we just want our cheetahs to be, have more self-confidence. This is life or death for them. And the, but, but then like, I think we can, we can connect that kind of cheekily to the being comfortable in your own skin kind of thing um, with the, you know, your skin with your stripes on it. And then the, the people living in their garages, kind of living their lives that are a bit under the radar, the, the maternal garage, the maternal garages. That's a good band name. I know that joke of that's a good band name is like overplayed, but maternal garages. It's like today when I had dental surgery, the person I, my, I was numb to the gills halfway through the surgery. I, I metabolize Novocaine very quickly and my dentist knows that. And so he gave me so much. And then halfway through, I started to feel everything still. (gasps) And so I had to, we did my like little raise your left hand. And I was like, um, I can feel this. Should I feel this? And he's like, no, because I was getting an implant. They were going into my jaw. And so he had to give me more halfway through. And so I was so numb. I couldn't like my eye was closed. I couldn't keep my eye open. And so the wonderful dental assistant is going through the aftercare. And he was like, okay, so you have this mouthwash, but for the first week, like no aggressive swishing. And something about the phrase aggressive swishing made me laugh so much. And then I was just drooling all over myself. <laughs> He must have thought he was not amused. He was like, I don't know if you should leave here, ma'am. Yeah. Probably. Go so. shopping in the rest of the target. Sorry, um, that's just that's just to say I think aggressive swishing would also be a good band name. So well, the part the, the quote that I was looking for was about how their identities never fit into a mainstream, but the garage allows them to like have the identity that they want, right? So like kind of about how having the identity that you want or finding your true identity takes a little extra work, right? Like if we want to know what our stripes look like, we have to depend on our cats and if we're UV lights and the cheetahs need the dogs and these people need their garages. And would say you need, you need the non-decorative machine for living in to live your best life. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, that's how I would connect those four things, but I don't know what to do with the pop culture. So your turn. So summarize quickly your thing then. That it is that in order to live your most authentic identity, you might need some assistance from an unexpected source. That might totally seemingly work against that or change it. Like the fact that we're, we think we look a certain way and then we're covered in stripes is fascinating. Yeah. That that you might end up 
uncomfortable with. Yeah. And then the best way for a cheetah to survive is just be a dog. Which is also fascinating, as you said, that dogs have evolved and changed and humans have evolved and changed together. Like, is this going to, are the cheetahs going to survive, but they're going to be like such a different being because they'll be dog cheetahs? Dog-like cheetahs. They're not mating, folks. Don't worry about that. The ghost tour. Ghost tours in Joe, but that works because, right? Ghost tours in general. That I the what the reason I'm endorsing ghost tours is because it can really help you understand a place in a very in a way you would not think, right? You would think, oh, a ghost tour is hokey. I'm not going to learn anything, but that actually tells you so much about that space and is actually really educational and and the message of EZA. I mean, I talked about it's problematic microaggressions and not aging well, but the message of EZA is to not make assumptions about knowing somebody based on the way that they look and the rumors you've heard about them. Like um, she, she does this big live stream at the end that is her saying that like you all have run away with these ideas about me and none of them were true. And you, you know, like it just shows how like I, my best friend even has turned their back on me over this. And, um, there was like a a love plot line in there that I didn't even talk about in my summary of it, where she's going to run off. And she's like, and maybe, maybe I'm going to have sex with him and maybe I'm going to have sex with him tonight. Or maybe it'll be on our wedding night in five years. You don't know, but most importantly, it's none of your business. Right. And so this idea of like, which parts of somebody's identity or which parts of a story you get access to. Like, I feel like there's, there's something, there's something about the what's knowable and not knowable and what's hidden and not hidden. What is the phrase I'm thinking of with like, you can't change your stripes or you can't change the spots on a leopard or something. Do you a know tiger that? can't change his, change his stripes? A tiger can't. And I know I always, I don't know if the listeners hate that I dumb it down to like a fortune cookie with a phrase I've heard a lot, or if we need to make a deep lesson and get in our, let's take it down. Let's get real quiet. Delilah. Think about love. <laughs> um, but maybe if somebody is just listening to this episode. They're going to have yeah. absolutely no reference for that. <laughs> but now we have inside jokes with our listeners, which is Delilah. Um, so is it like a tiger can't change his stripes? But, but you can. It, but in order to live his best life, he probably has to. But he can't. <laughs> a tiger doesn't think he can change his stripes, but he must. It's that. How about that's a stupid phrase. <laughs> um, let's just be antithetical to a known phrase and not create our own. Just be like, I hate that. A tiger can't change his stripes. And that's dumb. <laughs> it's dumb. And if you shave a tiger, well, the stripes are still there, actually. And that's very interesting. No, you got because it's up to you whether you change your stripes or not. And is it though? Because the cheetahs don't get it's to decide. Not. They just got it's, they just got some puppies tossed in with them. Yeah. Oh, I'm so lost in this. Living your best life. To live your best life, you probably need a protective shell. What was what was your billionaire villain's quote about trade-offs? 
it's a trade-off. Yeah, people like light, but also I want to pack as many people into a close space as possible. <laughs> that should just be our fortune. It's a trade-off. <laughs> it's a trade. Well, but that I think that you're joking. It kind of is. You're joking, but yeah, if it's like you can't change your stripes, but you better fucking change them if you want to not die and if you want to not yeah um if you want to evolve and if you want to like not get stuck in a disney cruise with a fake window like you gotta rethink and it's not just one thing you have to rethink right he's not wrong it is a trade-off i just feel like he's made the wrong calculation about it exactly i feel like that's very good it's a trade-off yeah trade-off yeah i think that yeah Instead of opening up the fortune cookie, I'm now going to imagine you tear off the page of your calendar for the new month. <laughs> it's a new day. The new day. And you see on your 365 days of agreement calendar, it's a trade-off. I accept. My and, I mean, like, and I think implied in there, if you've listened to our whole conversation, which Thank you. I guess we have been particularly rambly today. Um, I think implied in that it's a trade-off. It's like, so you got to make a good choice. Like, it's not like just take whatever comes your way then. It's that like. Right. Because it's a trade-off. Yeah. Fucking think about this, man. The vast implications. You you want. Oh, it I'm might sorry. look like it's just a puppy, but it's changing you at a molecular level. Right. Oh, I'm. Oh, you want a house for your car? Well, now we have decades and hundreds of years of institutional racism, and no. Uh, okay, it's a yeah, trade off. It's a trade off. Like, like the trade off of we could think of something better or explain it more, or not have a two hour long podcast. And we have chosen to let you go about your day now. Yep, it's a trade off. The trade off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, we should remind them to give us grab bags, even though they never do. Never do. Give us grab bags. It's a trade-off and you're making a bad trade. Do you want us to keep rambling like this or would you like to give us some fresh content? You can send us your grab bags in audio or written form, or you can even schedule a chance to come on the podcast live by writing to angrymentpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you to everyone who will submit a grab bag. We trust that they're coming in as we, well, not as we speak, because you haven't heard this yet, as you hear this. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.